at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Anne Lamott, who, along with her son Sam Lamott, has written a book, Some Assembly Required, a journal of my son's first son. Anne Lamott is the author of four previous works of nonfiction and seven books of fiction, including a kind of trilogy, Imperfect Birds, Rosie, and Crooked Little Heart. Anne Lamott has been chronicling the life of her son, his first year in a book called Operating Instructions. So this is a kind of sequel. Mm -hmm. That was also a journal-type book? Mm -hmm. It was a journal of Sam's first year, and this is a journal of Sam's first son's year. Did you go back and reread that book for this one? No, I really just don't read my own work with any real pleasure. Your last book was Imperfect Birds, which was a novel. At that point, were you planning to write another novel? Were you looking around what was going on? I was planning to write nonfiction. In fact, it started a project. This was not my idea, but my editor, who I'm crazy about, Jake Morrissey at Riverhead, asked if I might want to do a sequel to Operating Instructions. I said, no, I think it would be exploitive. And he said, not if you didn't exploit anyone. And then I happened to mention it to Sam, and he was ecstatic. He wrote the preface of this book and you can read that he'd always just loved yeah operating instructions so much that he loved that his son would get his own when i interviewed you for uh for perfect birds jacks had been born by then but i'm not sure i don't remember i actually don't remember <laughs> <laughs> but Let's I re see i think imperfect words was out two years ago so jacks is two and a half now so maybe so yeah yeah so at that point uh were you, were you already keeping a diary do you normally keep a diary i don't usually keep a diary that's why it was funny because my editor asked me right before jacks was born if i wanted to keep a journal and and i didn't particularly and sam really encouraged me to yeah i was keeping a journal by then and at that point, had you already informed Sam and Amy that you were doing this and you might want to get their assistance? Yeah, of course. I had to tell them. And Sam was so much a reason that this book exists at all. And then Amy had always loved operating instructions. And, she, you know, Sam, as soon as they started dating, made her read it. So he would be like a hero in his own mind. So, no, she was excited about it. As you were writing it, did you have preconceptions of what it would be to be a grandmother, or did you kind of walk into this going, I'm too young, he's too young, I have no idea? That's pretty much it. I did feel like he was too young and she was too young, but who asked me? You have no idea what it's like to be a grandparent, because how could you? And you know you'll fall desperately and madly in love with this child, but it's real life, and, and it's real life with an infant, and that, and that makes it complicated. But like with everything else, you show up, you push back your sleeves, and you pay attention. As you're working on the book, I'm, I'm sure that things came up that you absolutely didn't expect. The most surprising you said in an interview was that you would fall so absolutely madly in love. But were there other things that surprised you about yourself, you think? Well, when I wrote Operating Instructions, I think that what I expressed as, as being so surprising about being a mother was just how 
exhausted and enraged and clueless you can be because at that point people hadn't really written about motherhood from a point of view of just being flat out honest and funny about it. It was all more glossed over and more of the surface had been prettied up a bit. And so with um, Jax, I, I was just surprised by the depth of my emotions and how desperately I wanted to get my clutches back on and when you know it's so great to be a grandparent because the kid leaves and that's a huge blessing but I was surprised by how I'd start sort of mooning for him right away and want to be back together and of course I was disappointed to find out just how controlling and neurotic I could be with a whole new generation and of course Sam and Amy were not really very interested in my opinion on child rearing and it was their child I had to really make peace with that pretty early on. But at the same time, you knew you were going to write it and publicize it. Did you try to, like, separate that out from just being a grandma and trying to be as good as possible so you wouldn't have to report how awful you were? Well, obviously, I wasn't going to write the darker stories or the more private stories of Sam and Amy having a baby together. So I've always been very, very careful with boundaries. I've never, ever written anything that Sam would be embarrassed to come upon. And since the age of about 10, he's gotten to read and approve everything I've published. So I'm very clear on boundaries. So I, you know, I wasn't taking notes on everything that went wrong. I was taking notes every few days about my impressions, my really hilarious or really sweet moments and stuff like that. But, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I didn't want to make anyone crazy. I certainly didn't want any legal problems. So, <laughs> Well, you do mention friends and some discussions with friends. They all approved what was in the book, right? Well, I gave Sam and Amy both the, and Amy's parents the book to read, and I told them if anything really seemed off to them, we would take it out or get it right. So it's not like a, a journal in the sense that it's verbatim is a journal that has been gone over by people. And if they just didn't agree with stuff or they said it didn't happen that way, I paid attention to that. And you have one friend who always looks on the bright side of everything and to a point where you don't want to call her when you're in a bad mood. Right. Did she read those sections too? I didn't give them to her beforehand, but she loves me so much and she thinks I'm so comically worried and controlling that I knew she would love them and she has since. One uh, issue that came up in that interview I read is that you'd never really considered the feelings of competitiveness you would have with his parents, with Jax's parents. But you wrote, jealousy is, is a core material in the human scheme of things. Do you think that? Oh, yeah. I've always written a lot about jealousy. There's a whole chapter on it in Bird by Bird. You know how jealous you are of other writers or people that you just don't think that are that good, who've done better than you, usually. I've struggled with jealousy. It's really been my cross to bear. I don't think I felt jealous so much of Sam and Amy. I don't remember writing that, but I do think jealousy is absolutely core to the discussion of what it means to be human. You were feeling a lot of jealousy, apparently, whenever Amy took Jax to her friends in Chicago. Well, I didn't feel jealousy so much as I always felt scared that she'd move away. Yeah, I did feel jealous sometimes. There's sort of a funny section, a couple of funny sections about feeling competitive with them because they're all so young and beautiful and fresh and dewy, you know, and I'm so unfresh and dewy. They're also 20 and now they're all 22. But I'd always make a big joke of it around Amy. She never thought it was very funny, so I actually took out some of the rougher sections on that but i always thought it was funny 
that I'm going to be 58 in a couple weeks, you know, and I'm not going to compete on many levels with 22-year-olds. It's funny, when you become a grandparent, I think you're just unprepared for how deeply you love this little being. And um, and so when he would be gone for two and, and three weeks, I would find it kind of hard going. And at the same time, as this was happening, you lost your favorite uncle. Yes. Which must have been made everything kind of very bittersweet, because here you've got this wonderful kid, and then you lose one of the favorite people in your life. Mm-hmm. Well, he was really old, and I had been pulling and praying for him not to have a long, drawn-out death, and he didn't. And he was he's very close to Sam, and if, you know, like everyone, fell in love with Jack's. And when he died, you know, the timing wasn't great. But all of life is bittersweet. Everything is countered by if it's beautiful and wonderful and hilarious. There's something else going on that just causes your heart to grieve or to feel very troubled about it and vice versa. When you're very troubled and and uh, can't figure anything out, which I usually can't, then the spring is bursting forth and you're sort of stunned by the beauty. So... I've come to expect that life will always be paradoxes, always, always. Well, Anne Lamott, there are two really pretty amazing sections in the book, I thought. The first was a trip to India, and the second was a trip to... Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. Well, it's on the North Sea, so you hit uh, Riga, you hit Poland on that trip. What occurred to me as I was reading it is that you're a hell of a travel writer. Had you ever thought about that? I have come to really love traveling. I was never able to do it because I never had any money. And now also things are really doable. I went to Rome last summer on a $1,400 ticket. I would never want to be a travel writer, partly because I don't read travel writers and I don't lust after travel writing. And I always just try to write the stuff that I'd love to come upon. That was what I always told my students when I had students was write what you'd love to come upon. I hope the writing's good. The section on India was about a hundred pages. You know, there's endless, endless, endless I w- notes. I wish it had been there, actually. I liked it a lot. Thank you. Well, you can't have a hundred pages on um, India in a <laughs> journal of a baby's first year. But I got it down to a reasonable amount that I thought really captured it. But, you know, India, more than anything else I've ever seen, just blew my mind. Stunned me almost, almost to the point of speechlessness. It sounds as if the sensory input was on overload the entire trip. Well, it is. I was prepared as far as you can be prepared for the fact that nothing that I thought about life and living in, in cities was going to have anything to do with India. A lot of what prepared me were were movies. I, I knew it was going to be overwhelming, and I knew it was going to break my heart, and I knew it was going to be exhilarating. And everything I know about writing sort of served me as a traveler to India, which was that you take very small pieces of the whole, and you let yourself do it badly and make lots of mistakes, and you ask for lots of help. I was with this friend Bill Hansen who speaks a little Hindi and he's been there so many times that he he was the reason I was able to go at all but he'd always said oh if you can get to India I'll show you around for a couple weeks but he never thought I'd get there because it's such a stretch because I'm such a homebody so I showed up and he was stuck with me. How did the decision to leave Jack's leave Marin and go there how did that come about I mean did you suddenly say okay I've got to get away i've got to stop this addiction what happened no it was just that bill had said he was going to be there during a for a month and if i could get there at any time during those few weeks that he was there we could do india together and he'd show me delhi and and varanasi benares so 
I don't know why. I mean, I just felt like the Holy Spirit nudge or something. And I have a trillion miles from book tours. And I got a cheap ticket. And, and I had a perfect travel guide who was just hysterically funny and brilliant. So I went. I think that if you have a little addiction going to someone, the the best possible thing is to test yourself and, and you know, release them to their own life and get get the hell out of there. And then later on, uh, within a few months, you did something different, which was fly to Stockholm and then take this other tour. How did that one come about? Well, my Jesuit friend, Tom Weston, and I sometimes get asked to be the speaker on, in various sort of travel capacities like tours. And so we had been asked before Jax was born if we would go to Stockholm and then the Baltics. And I'd always, always, always wanted to go. And I really wanted to see Stockholm, which which I was absolutely unprepared for because uh, no one had ever said to me you absolutely must start going to Stockholm but it's fantastic it's as um, beautiful and mystical and stunning as Venice is but it doesn't have that reputation and I loved it in fact I want to go back to summer if I can and then there's the Baltic you know and and uh but I had Tom with me, another another friend who's brilliant and very historically grounded and hilarious. So I had another perfect travel guide, and he'd been to all those places before. So I'm, I don't think I'm doing anything that's really very challenging, <laughs> which would be to fly somewhere scary alone. Well, in that case as well, did you have 100 pages that you had to pare down to 25 too? It was long, not nearly as long as India. India is, um, you're just so desperately trying to capture Everything is so on beyond zebra, to quote the late great Dr. Seuss, and you're just getting everything down, whereas at least in the Baltic countries, things are recognizable. You know, there's people walking along the streets, but the streets aren't a mat. There's no cows, you know, which is a start in terms of getting acclimated. There's no cows in the streets. There's not, you know, one billion extremely poor people on the streets of Riga. I did, I probably wrote, had a, 40 pages of that trip, and it, it comes down to 10 again, 12, 13, I'm not positive. And Lamont, you complain in the book about, they didn't contact me, yeah. they didn't contact me. Do you do texting at all? I mean, I do everything possible, but <laughs> but then they would come through. You know, there's some in India, especially. There's this one, one of the funniest things I think I've ever written was Sam and Amy via this Indian friend, this Hindu friend of theirs, trying to get me a free phone call, and it was like the Marx Brothers. And then I get these texts. Jax is crawling. Well, not really crawling, not up on his knees, but doing the army crawl. Come home. So just when I give up all hope. And I think I have had an awful child and I'm not speaking to him and I'm not going back to California because he's so mean to me. I get a perfect text or email. There's also a section where Sam is roaming the streets and comes across these people who wind up taking him to an ashram. And both of you kept going to that. Do you still go down there? I haven't gone down in about a year, but I went a number of times. Yeah, he was walking along the streets in a bad mood. Jax was a little tiny baby, and, and he kind of bumped into these two East Indian guys, one in saffron robes. Of course, I think my son's now going to be a Hare Krishna. But the guy said, well, come meditate with us. It's free. And they went back and got Amy. And, and then they invited us to this ashram in Los Altos Hills, and it was just heaven. And Sam... He was like family to them, and then like mom was dragged along. It's a nutty mother, but I do have a GPS so I could get us into the Los Altos Hills. And I just fell in love with everyone. I mean, to me, God is God, you know, and there's one mountain and many, many paths. And I loved it. I loved the whole kirtan of um, the faith, the 
service and the meditation, the chanting and the, oh, and then these beautiful vegan meals they'd make for us. Just a small 11, 12 people every time, but I loved it. You're listening to an interview with Anne Lamott, who's written a book with her son, Sam Lamott, called Some Assembly Required, A Journal of My Son's First Son. One thing I noticed there, and I noticed throughout the book about Sam, a lot of People, probably myself when I was that age, between 20 and 25, everything is crap, everything is stupid, and I'm cynical about everything. Sam doesn't seem to be that way. Huh, it's interesting. No, he's not. He's actually not that way, but the, the, his friends aren't that way. That really? might, yeah. Or at least around me, they're not. You know, they're amazingly sweet, actually. And, of course, I find the whole that age sort of annoying, but it's because they don't have their prefrontal cortex is fully formed yet, and they have tiny issues with judgment. But that seems like more of a punk. So I don't know. It's Sam's just not that way. He's He's a pretty sweet guy, and he's usually in a good mood. And then when he's not, it's like having this... 16-year-old that you just want to strangle, but you can't strangle people who have children because then the baby will be left without a father. So that's sort of Sam's great advantage now. There's a lot of cynicism in America today, and it doesn't seem to have affected you or Sam or Amy. I'm very cynical. You think? Oh, I'm very cynical. Totally. I do have a lot of faith. I mean, I'm both things, but I just don't think this earth works at all. I always say to people, this place has not been a good match for me, and I find it just impossible, and especially during the Bush-Cheney years. Oh, you know, I just want to say, I'm teaching Jax to say, Dick Cheney stole my sock, because Jax is very articulate, but he's always without one sock. It always seems to have come off in some other room. So now I say... Jax, where's your sock? And he'll say, Dick Cheney took it. But, of course, he doesn't know what it means. But I think those eight years of Bush Cheney were devastating, devastating to the national psyche and spirit. And uh, we aren't going to come back anytime soon from that. I think I'm pretty cynical. There's not a lot that I put my energy into. There's not a lot that I make myself available for because I don't believe in very much of it. You certainly have put yourself in faith. and. You manage to be ecumenical about it, going to Catholic churches that the Catholic Church and its relationship to molestation, its relationship to women's rights is pretty gross. And I, I would guess that Father Tom sort of acts as a mediator for you. Well, usually if I'm in a Catholic church, it's on another continent. So right away, it's got a little bit of a, a head start. But... um I don't go to very many Catholic churches here. When I go, you know, I take what I like and leave the rest, and I don't fixate on the catastrophe of, of the Pope. It's the people in a Catholic church are so sweet and gentle, and I, I don't care who I worship with. I really don't. You know, the Catholic church very often doesn't want to give me communion, but they, and many churches look the other way and they also will offer the loathsome protestant the chance to just cover her heart with her hands and receive a blessing which is fine the reason i go to church i believe in church in my church it's an old civil rights church and it's gotten old and we're old and it's 45 people saint andrew presbyterian in marin city but it's a failing church and i love it i live for sundays i take jacks to church i'm an activist i believe in political activism i believe in registering voters i believe and what Molly Ivins always talked about, banging your pans, you know, banging your pans about the war and for women's rights. And, and I believe in 
a path of recovery for a lot of people like me who have had problems with alcohol. But I don't believe in much that the cultural world has to offer me. I don't want it. I don't play by its rules. I spend most of my time by myself. I like to read. I'm like, you know, you and I probably have infinitely more in common than we do different, even though I'm a Christian. But I like to read. I like to be alone. I like to walk. I have two dogs. That's sort of a, you know, and I have a grandchild I see several times a week. So it's sort of a full-time life. Well, I I would guess that having a kid in your lap kind of counterbalances watching the Republican primaries. I love the primaries. I feel fully (laughs) alive again. I just can't ever wait for election year, but this year is so special. I mean, I just love each, all four of the candidates more than the last. Although the wind went a little bit out of my sails when Michelle Bachman got out of the race. Oh no, I'm just riveted. I'm just watching it like Kabuki theater. Don't you just love Santorum? Every comment he comes out with is more outrageous. So brilliant. And and Gingrich, I mean, you just it's just hard to believe. It's such an embarrassment of riches. And and Romney, I mean, it's just I couldn't write the stuff they say. I don't know anyone that could write the stuff they say. Monty Python, maybe. Maybe Monty Python, yeah. But oh no, I just I just find it riveting. But you know what I'll I will do when the summer comes is I'll push back my sleeves and I'll do what we have always done, just I'll register voters. How do you like writing memoir versus writing fiction? Well, I've actually written five books of nonfiction, and all of them have been infinitely easier than the novels I've written. Well, this this new book uh, is my sixth book of nonfiction, and novels are hard. You know, novels take me three years always and for the first year you don't really know what you're doing you don't quite know who the characters are you don't know what would be true for them you try to get them to do stuff that would be great plot wise or could have some great material that would go with that action if they were just going to do it and the first year you i can say this probably for most novelists you have zero self-esteem because you can't show your stuff to people yet it's unformed and the only way through it is through it you just write bad drafts for a year then you kind of semi-sort of know your characters and what's going to happen with them. Then you spend a second year getting a decent, readable draft together. Then you can start asking for help. And people say the beginning doesn't work at all. Or midway through, you bog down. They're never interested when this one character appears. And, and you know, it's awful. And I always think, well, that's fine. But, you know, we're not friends anymore. Now I hate you for saying that. But then you're desperately grateful to people that will guide you and help you. And... Then the third year is more like making a Swiss watch. It's just fanatical detail and... I kind of like the third year, but I don't really feel like I have those first two years in me right now. I've never been able to write a novel without really having the pump primed inside of me. I know when I have the energy, and when I do, I go, oh, shoot, because I kind of don't want to do it. But with all the novels I've written, I've had that feeling. Nonfiction, whether it's a memoir or not, is a lot easier for me, because I don't write long, creative pieces of nonfiction, like that brilliant new book on India, Beyond the Beautiful Forever. Yeah, she's brilliant. And that's a long, sustained work of nonfiction I don't, I don't have in me. I don't do that. You know, my stuff has either been these short essays on faith or the pieces on writing and bird by bird are all sort of self-contained, but they hold together as they would on a necklace or something. And then two journals. How about writing short stories? Do you write short stories? I don't have a gift for short stories. Really? I've never written short stories. I did in my early 20s before I wrote Hard Laughter because I love short stories. It looks like it should be easier than it is. 
pieces and I would have something that was an actual story, i.e. a beginning, a middle, and an end that seemed like you can do it in 20 pages or less, and I just don't have the gift. It's funny because you think how much different could it be? I have not written good short stories. I haven't tried in years. You know, it's funny, Anne Lamott, as I was reading the book, I kept thinking, you know, here you brought a child into the world 20 years ago when things were going bad, and here Sam brought a child into the world two and a half years ago when things are going worse. On top of the various political issues we have, we also have changes in the Earth's climate. A lot of people these days simply don't want to bring kids into the mm-hmm. world because mm-hmm. of that. What do you say to them? Well, no one ever asks. You know, when people have children, most of the time it was a surprise to some degree. Some people plan their children, but I think it's an awful world for somebody to be born in. I wrote a lot about operating instructions about how painful it was to realize my child was going to have to go through through 7th and 8th grade, which to me epitomizes everything hateful and cruel and random about life is 7th and 8th grade. And um, the world politically has become really become so devastating, I would say, since Ronald Reagan especially. Yeah, you know, you do it and your heart's in your throat a lot of the time, knowing what they face and knowing what the effects of global warming are going to be on my grandchild. It's awful, but again, who asked me? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other thing is that as we get older, and when you talk to somebody in their 80s or 90s who talk about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, you begin to realize that maybe it's also an age thing that we realize the world is so bad knowing that Jackson 40 years will look upon 20 years earlier as a good time oh yeah um, I find the world a lot easier as I get older because you just naturally, I think a lot of us, a lot of people, you just naturally get well. You start to get more well. You care about a lot less. There's a lot less self-consciousness. You think, oh, what the hell? Ten years ago, you should have gotten me ten years ago because I would have cared then. And I just don't. <laughs> My back is out today. I'm not going to do very much today. I'm going to drive back home. I'm doing an event tonight. We're trying to raise money for St. Andrew. There's so much stuff that I could be doing. And even with a bad back, I just don't care about it anymore. It's like the airplane flying too low because there's so much stuff on it. And starting about 40, you start chucking it out, you know. And uh, even physically, I used to have uh, thousands and thousands of books. And I've gotten rid of two-thirds of them. I've given them to the friends of the San Francisco Library. I don't want them. I had certain books around because then people seeing these on my shelves would naturally believe that I was much more erudite and educated than I am. <laughs> and now I don't care. I cannot move with books anymore more because my back hurts i'm tired and i don't care if you think i'm educated and erudite i'm not i'm not i'm a dropout but with a lot of different stuff i think before you might have really cared what so-and-so thought or how many people do you care about their opinion now you know you count them on a uh, one hand maybe two so i find it infinitely easier to be 57 than i did to be 35 or god knows 25 with that toxic level of self-consciousness A, I don't care that much anymore. B, I think I'm really winding down as a writer, and I don't want to write so much anymore. I don't imagine doing this for very much longer. I'm writing some stuff now that I haven't published. I'm writing some shorter pieces that are a lot like Traveling Mercies. They're not necessarily on faith and capital letters, but they're on spiritual stuff, human spirit stuff. They're on 
people coming through really impossible situations. Anne Lamott, what's changed in the past year and a half since the book was finished? Uh, you said in an interview that Amy and Sam have broken up. Amy and Sam split up about a year ago, and so they've been raising jacks together, but from separate houses. You know, my life is sort of so dumb and predictable and quiet that I can't actually say one interesting thing that has happened in my life. Well, but there is one thing. What was that? Well, that's that the entire book, you are terrified, absolutely terrified that Amy is going to take Jax and move to Chicago. Mm -hmm. But instead, she still lives in the Bay Area where you can see Mm -hmm. Jax all the time. That's right. You've been listening to an interview with Anne Lamott who, with her son Sam Lamott, has written a book called Some Assembly Required. Anne Lamott will be at Piedmont Community Church speaking on April 4th at 7 p.m. That's through Great Good Place. And for more information, you can go to ggpbooks.com on April 17th at 7.30 p.m. at the Peralta Elementary School in Oakland. And that's sponsored by Mrs. Dalloway's books. That's Mrs. Dalloway's, MRS Dalloway's dot com for more information. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. and rock and rollers, you can come occupy the dance floor at Ashkenaz on Friday, April 6th. It's the 14th annual Stomp the Stumps, a benefit for the Coalition for Headwaters and Earth First. You can dance to the sounds of the Funky Nixons, the Gary Gates Band, and more, and find out how you can help defend the Redwood Forest. Ashkenaz is wheelchair accessible in all ages at 1317 San Pablo at Gilman in Berkeley. Sliding scale from $12, $10 in advance in students, There'll be door prizes, plus special admission for Occupy organizers. Call 510-548-3113. That's April 6th at 8 p.m. for the trees. See you there. 